Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. I'm Dave Etler. More importantly, I'm here today with my illustrious co-hosts, fresh from their battles with medicine and medical education. Say hello to Amy Young. Hello. Why are you laughing, Amy Young? I'm just excited to be here. Oh. <laughs> is that? All right. Joy. Also with me is Aline Sanduk. Hello. And we have Mark Mubarak. Hello. Uh, guys, I think you would agree with me that medicine is hard and it's not just because of all the learning involved from medical school all the way till you hang up your reflex hammer for retirement <laughs> you uh medicine proposes career challenges emotional challenges motivational challenges uh you know so being and being the best doctor you can be isn't all about what you typically learn in medical school so when you need some extra help you might turn to a mentor an advisor for some a coach so with us today is uh remotely is uh, Dr. Maggie Carey. Uh, Dr. Carey is a leadership coach for healthcare professionals, mostly in executive roles, right, Maggie? Yep, that is it. And she also speaks nationally and internationally on topics of uh, leadership development, emotional intelligence, um, management skills. She's a family medicine doctor with faculty positions at Georgetown University and George Washington University. And she is uh, also on the University of Colorado's uh, Denver Business School's Executive Advisory Board for the Center for Health Administration. Man. That sounds fancy. Sounds like a government title. It, it really it? does. <laughs> uh, and full disclosure, I've known Maggie for years. Uh, she's been a frequent attendee of the Carver College of Medicine's Examine Life uh, Medicine and Humanities Conference that Jason and I put on for the last 10 years. Uh, hi, Maggie. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here with such illustrious partners. Oh, my goodness. Also here, <laughs> I'm not going to acknowledge that because I, I don't want it to get to my head. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't want these guys thinking they're all that. Uh, so early in their career. They are. They're awesome. Okay. All right. Also here is Georgetown Medical School Jack, student Jack Penner. Jack is one of Maggie's clients, uh, but as a third year student, you're still third year, Jack? Yeah, yeah. Still third year. So as a third year, Jack, you're not the kind of client Maggie usually works with, are you? No, I'm definitely one, not, not one of her typical clients at all. What? Usually works with uh, healthcare professionals, and uh, I am just on my way to being there. What made you... Uh, what made you seek out a coach originally? So it actually kind of happened uh, serendipitously. Um, we ended up being connected by one of the uh, faculty med or family medicine faculty members at Georgetown, put us in touch, mainly just because the faculty who introduced us felt like I was interested in healthcare leadership, and I had been doing a little bit of writing, and she knew about um, about Maggie's writing background and her coaching background, and just said, you know, I think I think you two would enjoy talking. And so Maggie and I met and we really just hit it off and kind of it pretty quickly developed into a coaching relationship, which we've then taken to figure out a way to bring coaching to medical students. And so I wouldn't really say that I actually sought out. I didn't know that I wanted a coach until I had one. And then I felt that mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the most uh, productive and helpful and also fun parts of medical school for me so far. So once I got to experience it, I was hooked. What is it that's... What is it? What is it that hooks you in? Then, what what secret drug has Maggie fed you? <laughs> don't ask. Don't tell. Oh, don't tell. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I know. Uh, I think 
just it just feels very different than the type of mentorship and guidance that we usually get in traditional medical education. For me, this is about improving who I am as a person and also as a student clinician. Um, it just goes kind of beyond the decisions of like, did I do research? What field should I go to residency into? Where should I apply to matches? Uh, it goes a little bit beyond that and sort of into the mindsets and behaviors. And I think the thing that really hooks me in is I can feel tangible progress mm. every step of the way. And that I think is just so rewarding as a student when you want so badly to develop into a good physician and also to kind of maintain balance throughout medical school between you know becoming a doctor and also the rest of your life. And Maggie really helps to give me the space to kind of explore how I'm going to do all that, uh, in a, in a, just in a in an environment that's a lot different than a classroom where there's grades and assignments and lectures. Um, so when we were bouncing around ideas about um, what sort of questions we wanted to ask and you know what med student and med professional coaching was, um, to me it sounded a lot like counseling, um, but with a bit more accountability. Um, and a bit more, I guess, direction from someone who's actually in the field that you want to go into and has personally experienced this process. Um, and so I had the, I wanted to ask if you had ever been through counseling and if you felt like this was distinctly different in any way, um, if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, um, I've actually, I've, I've, I've never been through counseling in that capacity before, but I do see it as being much much more along those lines, but with a little bit more focus on uh, where do we go forward? You know, like I said, I've, I, I've never had a counselor, but I, in talking with some family members who have done it, I understand that a lot of it is about sort of analyzing and understanding the problems. And I think Maggie and I focus very much on, uh, we only really analyze and define the problems up to the point where we feel like we can do something about it. Mm. And then from there, it's all about, you know, what, what can we do to move forward? What can we do to progress? which I think is very refreshing uh, as a student, because I mean, I think most of us medical students can kind of get wrapped up in our own heads a little bit mm -hmm. and start to overanalyze and dwell on things. And I have felt like coaching really kind of pulls you out of that vicious cycle of just ruminating on stuff in your head and really brings you towards action and doing something and moving forward. So this is Maggie. Can I say something? No, I'm afraid uh, <laughs> we've run out of time. We'll have to. Uh, no, yes, please, of course. Why you look at your watch? <laughs> um, so this is interesting, an interesting discussion uh, because I've never asked Jack about that. But one of the things as coaches that we like to think, as Jack mentioned, that we're more focused on action, and I sort of liken it to a, a, a therapist or a might a counselor might be looking more as an archaeologist you know your past how does that affect your future and as a coach I like to think of myself as more of an architect than co-creating the future with my clients mm. that's fantastic that's really cool can you tell us a little bit about um, the process Maggie when somebody comes to you and and you agree to you know sort of get into this relationship and, and how does it how does it work how does it start to play out um, well, as you heard, Jack was was an unusual. He's just sort of we sort of fell into each other's laps. Yeah. And and most of my clients, I work with large healthcare organizations, and it's usually the organization that will bring me in. I'm moving from coaching mostly individuals to coaching teams or coaching an exec and his entire team, because I think that the 
key and the challenge in healthcare is really about transparency and being open. And are you familiar with the hidden curriculum? <laughs> we hear about it sometimes. <laughs> for our listeners, why don't I hear it? Why don't you uh, just define it um, for well, us? Well, no, tell me how you think of it. Tell me how you think of the hidden curriculum. Well, I remember discussing, we kind of had a couple courses here. We have something called Medicine Society, which discusses, you know, the interface of our personalities and values with healthcare in America and the world. And the way they described the hidden curriculum was kind of the culture that is embedded within your institution or your place that you practice and kind of how that can come. It's never spoken directly, but, you know, the kind of the hierarchy can exist or the unspoken expectations that might be there, um, those types of things that aren't ever explicitly mentioned but ought to be understood, and the dangers that come with it. I went to medical school and found that the thing that was the hardest for me, because I'm kind of a free spirit, I don't like to be told what to do, unlike all the rest of you, right? Yes. <laughs> um, oh, I love being told what to do. It's yeah, very freeing. Know, don't we all love it? Yes. What was really did not work was blame and shame. And I remember one time I was on a pediatric rotation with two of my two of my buddies, and uh, and the attending happened to be a woman named uh, Rena. I forget her last name, and she's now dead. So there you have it. But mm. she, uh, you know what pimping is, right? Yes, you know, I only recently found out what it stood for. Yeah, I once used that in a in a conference. I was speaking to a group of uh, public health people, and they wrote up a comment that word should never be used in polite company. So, oh my gosh! I yeah, now ask, do you know what prostitute is? Yeah, it stands for put in my place. Oh, I didn't know it was an acronym. <laughs> so, I know yeah, I didn't either. So it's supposed to be like rather than like an educational thing, it's supposed to show you how much you don't know. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. By asking yes. you a question. Until oh. there's a little puddle on the floor. How right? interesting. <laughs> I thought it was just yeah. referencing like pimps. Yeah. And either it was the idea of like, you have no control. I'm in charge. Yeah. I feel like either interpretation is accurate. <laughs> That's so interesting. But yeah. Yeah. But it's a neg. It's kind of a negative experience. And I actually said to this woman, I said, you know, when you ask me in that way, it really causes me to get nervous and I can't ask right. And she blew up. She blew mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. and presumably told her husband, who was chair of pediatrics, and it cost me my honors grade. Oh, my God. Oh. I yeah, love that I you said that to her. <laughs> well, you know, what was I going to say? I was, But you know what? Who who goes back to look at, to see if I get a pass or an honors in pediatrics now? I mean, and like I said, she's dead. So, um, <laughs> so it really so does hard. not matter at all. <laughs> you know, her husband's still alive, but she's gone. Yeah. yeah. So. So I really, um, one of my values is fairness and to stick up for the underdog. And I really don't like that kind of treatment. And so in coaching, part of my work is to talk with doctors and say, I work with a lot of white male surgeons. I love working with surgeons because they're very straightforward. And part of the coaching is, so how's that working for you? Let me just tell you what I don't do. I don't do problem doctors. I did that in the 80s. What I do is is physicians in leadership roles who want to get better. And so you asked for the process. The process is, uh, first of all, we meet and I and we see if we like each other. I mean, we see if there's some kind of a match. And then I have some forms and some, you know, some sort of like, you know, intake forms. We have an interview. We work out with goals. What are the goals? Um, how do you know if you've met those goals? What are the milestones? And with an organization, I have 
you know, again, it's usually every week, every other week, or once a month. I like to do an on-site visit, which I call shadow coaching, which means I follow them around. I go to meetings they might be chairing or sitting at, and we can do just-in-time coaching right after. And usually I meet with them and their supervisor and maybe an HR person. So the coaching relationship with the individual doctor I'm coaching is confidential, but how he or she is showing up outside the world is discussed with people who are seeing it. I do encourage my clients to say to people, I'm being coached, I'm working on this, and I want you to tell me how I'm doing. I'm going to be asking you for feedback because one of the challenges in medical school is this whole blame and shame thing. We don't, we don't give honest feedback. What we do is we often talk about somebody behind their back, Yeah. right? So how would you say that's different or is it the similar to consulting? So, oh, that's a great question. I always love that one. So if I were a consultant, I would walk in, I'd talk with a bunch of people, and I'll say, here was what you have to do, and I'd leave. Mm. So it's the ongoing relationship is the, the big part? Right. I'm kind of embedded, and usually it, these are six-month increments, mm. and usually people sign go for 12 to 18 months, mm. and then after that, there's sort of a consult, you know, like I can be your your honest partner like I can be the devil's advocate and say do you really want to do that so yeah they go they go in increments um, and it's you know it's driven what the what the coaching client wants and what the organization feels what that works with the organization if that makes any sense yeah mm-hmm. definitely it also um, it also implies more of an emotional investment and an intellectual investment in your client as opposed to a consulting relationship, which is really focused on increasing efficiency to drive profit making. I get to know my clients in ways that sometimes I don't think their spouses know them. (laughs) That's very appropriate for a doctor. I mean, there are things people tell their doctors that their best friends don't know, their parents don't know. Like, it seems like your training as a physician, like, perfectly prepares you for this job in so many ways, not only that you know this field, but also you understand the importance of how intimate people are, you know, how intimate are the details that people are revealing about themselves and you appreciate that and and capitalize on that to help them in their lives. That's awesome. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. Because if you think about it, docs now have about a 10 to 15 minute visit with their patients. I get an hour and sometimes I get a whole day and I get to see them over time, and I get to, you know, I get to, you know, I've, I've been to graduations, I've been to ceremonies with them, and the other thing is we generally stay in touch afterwards. Um, hmm. Not, of course, to the intensity, but, you know, like to share milestones. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it kind of sounds like organizational leadership, management skills, which we really aren't taught in medical school, but it's becoming, you know, the way we're administering healthcare now, it's becoming more of a that's the design and layout of a lot of um, healthcare practices well exactly and if you think about it that is we're going from volume to value-based care in essence we are physicians as physicians and having gone through medical school we're not really taught how to be team players we're taught mostly one style of leadership which is directive you know captain the ship you do what I say because I'm the boss mm. and doesn't work unless you're in an emergent situation, right? Right. Much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Dr. Carey, uh, so you describe it sounds super awesome, the uh, kind of organizational leadership and feedback you're giving. You said you were transitioning and how you met Jack um, was like an atypical relationship, seeing that he was a medical student. Are you are you taking on more medical students and kind of doing the same type of feedback? Or how does that look like when those types of relationships occur? I am so glad you asked that because Jack and I have a, have a project, but I'm going to turn it over to him to tell you. Ooh, exciting. So, uh, thank, thank you, Maggie. For uh, After she and I started working together, um, there was just this sort of sense that I had that more medical students want this and would greatly benefit from it. And we were kind of brainstorming, you know, how do we do this? Maggie obviously doesn't have the bandwidth to coach every Georgetown student who wants a coach. Mm-hmm. So we kind of thought, well, what if we just introduce them to some of these skills and some of these principles that we talk about in our one-on-one coaching sessions? And then from there, that idea evolved to, well, why not let, why not try to get some students a coach? And Maggie has an incredibly rich and now uh, generous network of coaches who she knows. And she just re- reached out to them and said, hey, here's what we're doing with medical students. And many of them either know or have worked with healthcare professionals in some way. And I think had an intimate understanding of some of the tensions and anxieties that we face as medical students and just kind of how how rough training can be. And so they were all willing. She found about, I think, maybe 15 coaches who were willing to donate 10 pro bono coach, one-hour coaching sessions for the medical students. And so we put on this workshop to really introduce coaching and some of the leadership skills and also mindfulness and, and reflection and some of these other areas that are around, I would say, sort of rather than traditional organizational management, they focused on self-management skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the workshop, we, we opened it up to the students and said, hey, if you want to coach, you have the option to pursue a coaching relationship. Um, we'll, we will pair you up with one. And, you know, we had 12 students come to the workshop. And by the end of the day, we had 12 students who wanted to have a coach. And so we're about two months in now. And some of the feedback that we've gotten from them working with a coach has just been nothing short of phenomenal, Dave. I think we sent you some of the uh, some of the comments that we've gotten from students, and they're really taking to this concept, so it's been really fun to see. Yeah, it sounds to me like one of the advantages of it might be that it's a safe third-party place where you could go and say, I don't know, or I need to get better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think when you, uh, when you remove any focus on grades and evaluation, and when you really feel like you have a partner in this, it's a whole different relationship that develops, and uh, speaking personally and also from what some of my other friends have told me who are involved in this program, uh, they're just it just kind of breaks down the walls in terms of things that you're afraid to admit, some of the problems mm-hmm. that you maybe are hesitant to address or bring up in an education setting because no one wants to be a red flag or no one wants to say something that it could be a potentially career-limiting confession. That is so uh, true. That's so, so do you, true. So do you, uh, and I, this might be more directed to Dr. Casey, do you identify a certain personality type that maybe coaching resonates more with? Because like just just thinking over what Jack was saying about reaching out for help, I'm pretty extroverted and I usually ask and like kind of go forward and is it more like, is there a personality difference? Like maybe people who are more timid will need, will reach out or find more benefit from your coaching or do you notice any trends? Um, no, not at all. I mean, I don't, I don't even think about that because it, it, coaching is a little bit different than reaching out to friends, a little bit different. And it's, you know, I, 
I mean, I have a lot. I have some really macho white male surgeons. You know, they're top in their field. who have absolutely no problem um, expressing what they want. Um, I'm just trying to think about that. That's such a good question. Um, I would ask, you know, and our students quite are quite varied. And by the way, the way I got my friend to coach to do it is I said, and these are coaches that charge three to five hundred bucks an hour. <laughs> okay. I said, how would you like to change the future doctors? Mm. How would you like to change how we educate future doctors? And they, they joined. And I and that's critical. And I'm going to turn it over to Jack again because I want him to he he is working with the students more, and I'm working more with the coaches. And ask him what he if he thinks there's a special personality type. I think it really the unifying theme. You know, we have people who are extroverts, who are introverts. We have people who want to go into surgery. We have people who want to go into primary care. But I think everybody who was in the group kind of saw this program and saw the workshop and said, oh, like. This is the this is an an opportunity to find a better way. I think like the one unifying theme is that people are a little bit frustrated or see um, you know a lot of gaps to fill in the way that we traditionally train student clinicians. Um, but beyond that, I wouldn't say that that there's a specific personality type. It's just this sort of desire to get better and this curiosity to explore uh, a potentially better complementary way of doing things. Yeah, I have to say, I was pretty, when when Dave told us we were going to be, you know, talking about coaches for physicians, I was pretty skeptical. I was like, ah, oh, that sounds silly. That sounds kind of new agey, trendy. Um, but in preparation for uh, meeting with you guys, uh, talking with you guys today, uh, he forwarded us, Dave forwarded us an article uh, from the New York Times written by Dr. Gawande. Uh, from the New Yorker. Oh, sorry, the New Yorker. And I'll, and I'll post. That's okay. I'll, I'll post a link on our in our show notes at theshortcode.com. Such a good article, such yeah, a good article, a and so that made me really appreciate, in terms of like performance, like doing a surgery, uh, and the importance of having somebody observe and give you feedback. Um, really great article. If you haven't read it, you should. Yeah made me want to sign up for a coach but then I kind of so from what I understand from what you guys are saying it's less kind of performance and more management type coaching that you do it's it's performance is often part of it but ultimately ultimately to be a good leader you have to be a good person and there's a whole field of adult development theory and Mm -hmm. and you go I mean this is getting a little wonky but you go from me to my organization, to the you know, to me, to my office, to my organization, to the world. And what happens is you start being able to, as you advance, and some people do it without a coach, but you start being able to think of all the interconnections in the world rather than just it's me in my operating room or me in my practice. And I know I mean, it's hard to explain, but you really start thinking about the world and and where your where your place is in it yeah and and i want to go back to the say something with the leadership development program it was we did a whole uh, lessons learned piece one of the critical pieces when you first of all it was on a weekend it was voluntary we just funded ourselves we just did it ourselves and i declared it a no title zone i said there Mm -hmm. will be no we're not going to use any titles and if anybody uses doctor mr or mrs 
you have to put a dollar on the table to Oh dear, you're going to be turning the whole uh, the whole paradigm upside down. <laughs> now, what's here's what's interesting. Jack kept calling me Dr. Carey, but after this he's now calling me Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> he had to pay $2. We only got three one of our <laughs> but three bucks on the day and two were from me. <laughs> so we, you know, by creating that now with with my clients, my regular clients, it's it's a little different than that, right? Um, but it's still about. So here's an interesting thing you may not. Do you know guys know what imposter syndrome? Oh is? yeah, we are very we familiar. all suffer from it. <laughs> okay, that's, I, that's when a I ran another program, for, national program for the Veterans Health Administration for their doctors. Hmm. Um, I hired external coaches because I didn't have the bandwidth. And I remember two of them saying to me, I have never seen such an incidence of imposter syndrome. Mm. And these are fully-fledged doctors out with successful practices. Mm. We physicians have a higher incidence of imposter syndrome than, the, than most That's people. demoralizing. I was hoping that I would get to a point where I was over it. Well, that's where coaching comes <laughs> Yeah, okay. Yeah, and just to, to speak on the topic of imposter syndrome, one of the... One of the amazing consistent feedbacks that we got from the workshop from students was uh, we we did a, an exercise in what's called polarity mapping, and this is maybe getting a little wonky again, but polarities is this idea of there being two competing tensions that rather than choosing one or the other, you need to learn how to, how to leverage both of them to get the benefits of each side without leaning too far in either direction when you start to tilt into the downsides of the other one. And so I, Maggie had first introduced me to uh, concept of polarities during one of our coaching sessions and I just fell in love with it and during the workshop gave a talk on sort of leveraging polarity tensions for students and then we took them through an exercise and every student took on a variation of balancing professional and personal in terms of the polarity tensions whether it was how do I balance school and social life how do I balance my career desires with my desires to be a friend or a husband um, or a wife or a father or, or a, a mother, or also just like kind of how do I stay sane while also become a good physician? And I think as we walked through this, everybody was looking at looking around the room saying, it's so nice to realize that I'm not alone in this. This and Just that right there for, for students to kind of yeah. go from this idea of thinking that, you know, I'm having these problems and it's only me, everybody else around me is doing fine. To realize like man we're all in this together and we're all kind of going through the same process i think it builds a lot of co community around around students that oftentimes isn't, isn't there because maybe on some level there's just this competitive environment or we don't want to be vulnerable or we don't want to you know admit that we're the one who's having a hard time when we think that everyone else around us is just this sort of emotional strong wall i have to say this makes me this idea makes me uh crazy because I mean, maggie I'm, I'm sure you relate um you know, we have, we both have a number of years in medical education at this point. Um, and I hear this all the time. Um, you're totally speaking our language right now. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I hear this idea all the time. Like, uh, you know, I, everybody seems to be doing so much better than me. Everybody seems to be, you know, handling this better, uh, on and on and on. And I, I've come to realize over the years that, you know, y'all are just, you know, faking it. <laughs> You know, like to, it's to, fake it till oh, you no, make we're it. Busted. We're busted. I, you know, to to yeah. to a large extent, it's you're you're faking it. It's you know, you're doing your best to put on a, a you know a, a strong face, but in the meantime, you're all sitting in your little silos, going, you know, am I the only one who feels this way? 
Um, so I think, I don't know, we, um, among our little group of podcasters, we've overcome that a little bit. <laughs> we, I think the phenomenon that Jack is describing of bringing people into a room and getting them to open up and then realizing that they're not the only ones and having that be like, just by its very nature, a very comforting thought is something we've found here on the podcast. Yeah. This is not, I would say, something that's very common at a lot of medical schools or in classes, but we've found that here. And that's why, you know, Amy, me and Mark are some of the, you know, devoted podcasters. We come back to this because this is a safe place for us to talk about those challenges. Yeah. I love hearing that. That is so cool to hear. Yeah. How, how do you guys feel like it's, it's changed the way you go about sort of being in medical school? Being oh, on the podcast? Makes me so happy. Yeah. I love, yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I just want to make sure I knew what he was asking, what Jack was asking about. So you're asking about like how podcasting has improved our experience. Yeah. I mean, I kind of came, I was at the point, well, so I was still doing my PhD and I knew I was going to be transitioning back into medical school. I didn't, all the class, all my classmates are like 10 years younger than me at this point. I didn't know anybody. And I kind of wanted to do something that would like help me reintegrate back into the medical culture, like the, the medical student culture. And I was kind of at a point like when I first came to see Dave and I was like, I'm thinking about just dropping out, and, you know, and not doing this whole thing and just kind of hitting like back and forth my frustrations with the training that I've been going through uh, and the problems that I saw in healthcare uh, and how medical education was done. Um, it's been it's been great. It's my antidepressant, I think. <laughs> Not to give Dave too much credit, but <laughs> oh. you got to patent you, Dave. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, literally broadcasting vulnerabilities kind of changes the culture of our school, I think, in a big way. Um, yeah. So the, I think the podcast has been an awesome avenue for that. When you were talking about uh, polarities, it reminded me of something my dad had told me when I was young, and I remember he told me to get rid of the word "but." when I was speaking so if <laughs> yeah. I want if I want this but I have to do that and you always use and and the idea of managing your expectations and the things that you want in life that they don't have to compete and polarities aren't always the existence that's what it reminded me of which is definitely a lesson that I need to keep in mind more often too and that reminds me of a rule of improv which I've read about um, which is that it's the same rule actually you never you know when somebody feeds you a line you never say but, Don't you close, always yeah. say and. Mm -hmm. So yes, and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to, um, to you know, give up the idea that, you know, you had something you wanted to get in there, that you mm -hmm. had something you wanted to say, and, uh, and to go along with what that person gave you so that things move along. It's, mm -hmm. the same, it's the same concept, at least in my fevered imagination. No, totally. Yeah. Um, it's exactly the same, and in fact, um, I've used improv games in some of the workshops I've done. Yeah. So a lot of what you guys have been talking about really struck a chord with me. Um, and I admit, when I when I first we should take I admit out. I admit implies that I'm about to say something <laughs> controversial. When I read your email, I was really excited. Um, I feel like what you uh, both are working on really um, addresses a component of medical education that's really lacking to the detriment of students and future doctors where it often feels like medical education is becoming very um, mass produced. Um, and I often felt in medical school, not because my professors didn't do a great job teaching or administrators don't care. It just 
the very nature of the process of making doctors often feels like uh, you're part of cattle and you know your job is to produce and do well on tests and make milk and you know when you're when you're <laughs> when your production is weak you know they take you out of the pack and they feed you a little bit of like individualized attention and kind of stroke your ego and talk to you a little bit and then as soon as you're making milk again they just throw you right back in the barn and i love it you know that's really the how analogy it felt. not that that's how it is but. no no exactly yeah the analogy it's very evocative but that's really how it felt it felt like i was just like this faceless cookie cutter individual going through the same motions as everyone else and the only time that I got personal attention from senior people was when I was struggling but then when things were going relative or better like when I was surviving then I just blended right back into the pack and that was very unsatisfying mm. compared to grad school now where you know I'm sure it has its own challenges but one thing I I've really enjoyed about grad school is mentorship and coaching. Yeah, exactly. So my thesis advisor um, and my PI is incredible. Um, he is someone that I look up to and respect, and he has the kind of life that I want for myself. And that's one of the big reasons that I was very motivated to go back to his lab. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's the type of person that I can raise any type of concern with, and he never gets upset. It, it just becomes a driver for discussion about what my goals are for the future, what kind of life that I want, you know, and how to how to overcome obstacles that other people face apparently. So at the end of this long diatribe, what I'm getting at is I'm very happy to see that there are people who recognize that there's this absent apprenticeship component to medical training and that you're taking steps to address that. It's, if I could jump in on that, um, Maggie is 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 mentor does mentoring equal coaching I mean is it the same thing pretty much well not really yeah I I mean Mm. you know I'm remember I'm a credentialed coach so I'm gonna go with I'm gonna talk to you about the rules it's totally different that's why you're here Maggie (laughs) yeah of course but but I'm also going to tell you that I do what's in service of my clients yeah so so that I may cross into consulting I may cross into mentorship mentorship is really like an older wiser person telling you what to do and helping you coaching is more again an architect helping you to create your future and by the way, the, the CEO of Shopify has a really interesting article in a recent issue of Fast Company about his experience with a coach. And the short version is, you can find the article, but the short version is that he used to love it when all his direct reports, they'd have their executive meetings and they all agreed with him. Then somebody told him to get a coach and he did and he was kind of irritated because the coach was suggesting that disagreement was really better. And mm. now this guy says two things. Number one, if I leave my executive committee meeting and everybody's agreeing with me, I'm worried. And I believe in coaching so much. I think, Jack, are there 10 or 12 internal coaches now in Shopify? Yeah, 12. They have 12 wow. just in their company. Yeah, I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. In fact, I've heard um, there's all kinds of complex arrangements that you can come to, like uh, to, to make sure that you're getting, you know, not just groupthink, but actual actionable uh, feedback from people, things like, you know, the 13th man hypothesis, where you always make sure that one person is assigned to be the person who says, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, you might want to think about this kind of thing. Um, where, and, and so um, it's interesting to me to hear this comp to hear of this company that is like, you know, sort of integrating coaching to make sure that people aren't just, you know, yesing their way through this, 
you know, process of, of running this company. That's really interesting to me. Well, there's a number of companies. Google has a whole department that's figuring what make good, makes good leaders. Yeah. New York Times Magazine had a really good article. The other thing is a lot of the companies in Silicon Valley do this because their whole thing is about people being able to speak up, you know, with design thinking and all other, all other kinds of things. This is just coming late, relatively late to medicine. And, and I ask you, what happens when you speak up to this, the surgeon God who's operating and, you know, yeah, I right. just heard on one of the, was he, you know, I heard that, you know, you don't dare say anything or ask a question because it'll be like, oh, you're so stupid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, the, the other thing um, I wanted to ask about was, so, so you, you said, you know, when I'm, when I'm working with a uh, physician client, Maggie, um, you encourage them to tell their patients, you know. No, not their patients, their colleagues. Their colleagues. Right. Okay, right. So important distinction. You encourage them to tell their colleagues, uh, you know, this person is here to, you know, help me out, right? Uh, do do they ever get pushback on that? Like, oh, you know what? What do you need that for? Are you some kind of loser? So, so this is very interesting because in the past, most most events, interventions were because of misbehaving doctors, and in the eighties, did that work? I don't do that work anymore. Yeah, and so, well, here's what's interesting: after the people, their colleagues realize what coaching is they all want one mm-hmm. i bet so, yeah. so can you go back to what what do you mean by problem doctors and I, and I think it's kind of tied in with another like kind of thought or question i have is like can you really teach you know leadership and good management skills it's kind of like can you teach empathy like we have all these you know empathy coursework structured into our first two years curriculum but if you're just not an empathetic person maybe it can't be taught so what I, enc- I would encourage you to look up Helen Reese's work, R-I-E-S-S, at Harvard. You can teach empathy. I've got several articles by her, and I interviewed her for my next book. And the other thing is that oftentimes people are not in the right place. So, for instance, if you're working in an organization where your values and their values aren't similar, you're never going to be happy. And let me tell you yeah. an example. I had a client, remember I said I don't do problem doctors. Well, I had a client in, I had a large organization, a name brand organization, internationally, healthcare provider, and they had a doc who had been brought in to create change in a specific department. And that's exactly what he did, but he did it in the way that was done in his Northeast famous medical school which wasn't the culture of this particular organization. And so he really angered a lot of people. He burned a lot of bridges, including the wife of, who's a doc, of one of the leaders in the organization. And so my work with him, he got put on a performance improvement plan or a PIP, and I had to meet with his supervisor and with the HR people. But one of the things he realized was his values were much more those of a startup organization, not this hundred-year-old, you know, firmly established healthcare organization. And he ended up leaving of his own accord. He does not know how close he was to being fired. And he went into another organization where he is much happier, right? Mm. And, And one of the things that we've discussed that he did, he went around and said, apologize to everybody. You know, and thank them for them. They're helping him, and so he left under good circumstances. 
That's amazing. That That's a really interesting story. Yeah, I kind of wonder if, like, coaching would come in handy for residency selection because I think some of the burnout like with ER docs and other things is like what you might be interested in initially maybe isn't really compatible with your skill set or what you're wanting out from your career. So I'm going to ask Jack to talk about that because he just took an assessment that is designed for medical students. It's a variation of a very famous assessment called the Hogan. It's designed to help medical schools medical students and residents. So go ahead, and Jack, he just, we just got the results yesterday, so we haven't had a chance to debrief on it. But go ahead, Jack. Yeah, I think you you, you bring up a really important point here. And I don't know if, if that was Elaine or, or Amy who brought up the cattle analogy, but there's this idea, and I think that we all kind of get fed as medical students, that you should just try to go to the program that's the best one you can get into. And then we all kind of cross our fingers and say, I hope that that program ends up aligning with the type of physician that I want to be and it ends up paralleling what my values are and what I want to get out of my training. And I I don't think that there's enough sort of reverse engineering of that process and starting with saying, okay, what are my values, what's important to me, and then moving forward from there. And then also adding to what are my values, saying, where do I work best? Mm -hmm. That's where this Hogan assessment was really helpful, just in, in, in skimming through the results of it. You know, it tells you areas where you might struggle in terms of um, leadership positions that you might be in, what what you need to look out for mm. when you get stressed or when you're under sort of uh, a low sleep condition or whether whenever things are getting, you know, a little bit out, out of control in your own head just because of the demands of residency. It tells you what to watch out for in yourself. And all these things really come back to this idea of getting a little bit more connected with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that we don't have that enough in medical education. And I think it costs us both as individuals who are going through this process, but then also when we get out into the world and we're practicing, if we can't connect with ourselves, I think it's a lot harder to end up connecting with our patients. And I think patients suffer from that too, where they get this detached, impersonal care. Absolutely. Yeah, I have to say, for just personally, in my experience going through clerkships, I have really enjoyed like the like trauma, surgery, emergency medicine clerkships because it's just these major life events, you know, very definitive work being done to immediately, you know, hopefully help someone's life survival. And I'd go home and I'd say, tell my husband, oh, you know, I just I think I want to do surgery. I think I think I might like doing emergency medicine. And then he he said, Amy, but you're such a planner and you're so organized. Like you have an agenda of everything you're going to do the next day. Like, How are you going to do a career where you don't know what's going to come in the door the next day? And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so even though I've liked these short, like kind of brief experiences, I don't know. I'm glad that I kind of stepped back and kind of thought, wait, like as a career day to day, am I going to am I going to be able to sustain that level of, you know, investment activity, you know, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. There's so little protected time, I think, in med- medical education to, to, to figure out who you are mm-hmm. and where you where you want to go, which is, I mean, it, it, it it's really interesting to me that, you know, you, you at least, you know, you, you get to your fourth year and now all of a sudden it's time to figure out like it's not enough. To, uh, it's, yeah, it's you not get you get maybe like in our case, you get um what a, t- a total of couple of months maybe? basically a couple of months of of clerkships outside of your your core clerkships you know the ones that everybody takes 
to sort of, you know, quote, explore. Uh, but it's really not enough time to like experience everything. So you have to make, there's a leap of faith that you're, mm-hmm. there so is. I, I, I want to know about this Hogan assessment. Is this something that anybody can take? Is this something anybody can find it? No, but I will introduce, I will make an introduction if you want with Dave and the guy who owns the company and you could maybe have him on to talk about it. Oh, that would be it. really Ooh. interesting. Yeah. yeah. This is a really cool instrument for medical students. He's in, he, he works with a few medical schools, and again, we're we're sort of doing this um, to see if Georgetown would be interested in, in doing it. But I, I'll, I'll make the introduction, and I, I, you know, you really should hear from him. I appreciate that. That would be awesome. Yeah. It, it it is incredibly thorough and just incredibly helpful in terms of defining and getting a better understanding of yourself. Because I think yeah. you know, there's this idea that if I work hard and go to the best place, then I will be happy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's the most successful way to go about the process. I think a better way and what I what I feel like coaching and these assessments help with is you figure out what is going to make you happy. And then you look for the places that are going to help complement that. And that's where you should go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of medical education is built on kind of grinding everyone down into the same little key to fit into the same little keyhole. But the fact is that the profession you're going into, unlike in any other place in your life, you are now the person that everyone works around. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. and it's a weird cultural shift because for most of my life, I have had to figure out on the fly what aspects of myself I need to play down and what personality traits to play up in order to have a successful interaction with people. And I'm realizing that as a doctor, like, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what about you people don't like, they will get over it in order to have access to your expertise. And that's not a cultural shift that any part of medical school prepares you for. If medical students aren't given an opportunity to think deeply about what their flaws are and what makes it difficult for them to interact with people, then when they get onto the real world, they end up antagonizing a lot of people around them because Mm -hmm. they've never taken the time to address those flaws. And there's no real incentive to in the professional world because people just accept that like well this guy is really difficult or this woman is very abusive but they're really great at their job so we just have to learn to deal with it and it seems like it doesn't have to be that way well so let me tell let me tell you a few things about that first of all imagine everybody all the people that are up you know that are watching the physician act out the same changes are going on in their mind as the person that the anger is aimed at so think of the emotional carnage you're causing, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, in surgery, I used to say for my family doctor, I want mom. For my surgeon, I want a good technician. If they've got bedside manner, that's gravy. Until I read an article that shows that surgeons, and I wrote a, I wrote a piece on it at the healthcare blog, that surgeons that have, that have run, run efficiently running teams in surgery actually have better results and their patients follow up better. And there's a program the University at Edinburgh has a whole program about this, and Jack has borrowed the book to look at it. So I would encourage you, you know, there are pro- I mean, here we have all this evidence, and yet we're not doing it. And the last thing I want to say is, in my reflective writing class this past year, I gave, um, I gave my students the option to take this test. And four did, and then we, we, I think we debriefed for a brunch on a Sunday in my house. And what was interesting is they could all look at each other's results. It's and it's not there's not a better or worse thing. It's just the results. And they looked at each other and realized that they had differences and similarities in what they were doing, and that nothing was bad or good. This was just data. Mm-hmm. 
but data that's informative and that could dramatically improve their lives and practice and benefit patients. That's incredible. Uh, I wonder if you would, uh, if you guys would help us answer a listener question. Sure. Uh, JW from Australia. Woo-hoo. Australia. Woo-hoo. I've been there. It's lovely. Yeah, well, I've never <laughs> been there, but uh, I hope JW lives in a place that I would like to live and not in a place that has, uh, I don't know, giant scorpions and <laughs> snakes that fly. And they, I don't know what the heck they, they have. They have a rat. They, probably they have more really poisonous snakes than any oh, place yeah. else in the world. They have yeah. a rodent problem. There was a giant rodent problem I read about. Anyway, JW Rabbit. from Australia. <laughs> great place. Great place. God love you. Hope you're okay. <laughs> JW wrote in uh, to the shortcoats at gmail.com and pointed out an article, and I'll post a link as I always do at the shortcoat.com, in which the author, an ER doc of 25 years, suggested that to combat burnout and stress, physicians should understand that it's just a job. And uh, he said that when he you know, brought this up with his colleagues, they were basically like scandalized, like, it's not just a job, we are... We're saving lives. That's true. Like people that go into medicine, like we invest a lot of our identity in our career. Actually, we do more more so than other more so than people in other careers. So so it's hard. Jack and I've talked about this article. We actually saw it when it first came out. Mm. Jack saw and sent it to me. Yeah, it's. uh, And I'm going to let Jack explain what we think. It's a tough. I talked. I sent this to quite a few of my friends, and I mean, even myself, first reading it, uh, you get a little bit defensive about it, and until you look at it a different way, because I think what uh, if you look at it as either it's just a job or I'm incredibly invested in the care that I give to my patients, then it becomes this, this choice that you have to make, and you have to sort of pick one side of the spectrum over the other. And in talking about this more with Maggie it kind of emerges as a polarity pair hmm. between caring for your patients and caring for yourself. And it's not an either or thing. It's, it's a, a both and tension that you, that we all need to leverage in terms of, you know, we do care deeply about our patients and we do want to be superheroes uh, in the medical care that we provide. And at the same time, we're also humans. And so I would just say, I would think about looking at it and ask, and like ask ourselves individually, what are the benefits of caring deeply for my patients? What do I get out of that? And then also ask myself, what are the benefits of taking care of myself? You know, if I care deeply for my patients, they feel connected to the care that they receive. Um, you know, they're happy with their medical experience. They may have a you know a, a better post-operative course, or they may just end up healing faster or quicker. They may just have a better relationship with medicine overall. When I care for myself, I can help avoid burnout. I can also, you know, sort of maintain the other relationships in my life that are important to me. And if I drift too far in either direction, mm-hmm. whereas if I, if I say it's just a job too much, then I start to sacrifice the care I give to my patients. Mm. And if I drift too far into the professional side of things and start putting too much into my patients, then I end up having nothing left to give and I end up burning out. Yeah. And so I think it is just a job and it is an incredibly meaningful job and we have to kind of each find our own our own balance point between those two to deliver the best care right now and also over the long term. Yeah. There's, I feel like there's some pillars of medical education that may um, lead some folks to hold at least subconsciously that kind of like, you know, we save lives and this is the most important thing that I do in my life. Um, you know, med ed, t- at least 
you know, typically draws a really strong connection between uh, medicine and service to mankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's this uh, this idea that we must be that you must be compassionate above all else. Um, and the long hours that are required um, while we in the meantime, we tell people to stay well rounded. The sacrifices of family and friends and 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 lifestyle that are that seem to be required. Um you know, I always get worried about these guys. I want them to. It's it's kind of promoted in a weird way, though, coming in. I think the intention, you know, when you go into medical school and orientation, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And you keep getting these waves of like, you're going to suffer. It's going to be so terrible. Um, but it's OK. You're here. And which is good. I think that's the intention. But sometimes I, I get this sense of like. There's almost a sense of martyrdom that you, comes with oh, being yeah. a physician. Of totally. like, if I'm <laughs> yep. not if I'm not hurting. Then I must be apathetic and lazy. I'm well rested. Yeah. I haven't worked hard <laughs> and, enough. <laughs> and again, it goes back to that previous conversation of looking around and the, you know, the dangers of being in isolation to others' vulnerabilities. Like, mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make a comment on that again. Sorry, you have to put up with me. No, do. But but your generation, not yours, Dave, because we're in the same generation. Yeah. But <laughs> sorry about that. But the younger generation is changing this. And let me give yeah. you an example with a client. Um, this is a practice that is really, it's a specialty practice. It's very much um, patient-oriented. I mean, it really is. You get along very well. And it was started mostly by men, and now it's kind of morphed into most of the docs. There's, I don't know, about three dozen, four dozen docs are women. And one of, they sent out a survey to find out how much people wanted to make, right? How much do you want to make? Well, it turns out they wanted to make the younger ones, which is what most of the docs are, wanted to make like two-thirds what the older docs had wanted to make when they came in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the older doc was, the one that was involved with the survey was just blown away. He said, wait a minute, this isn't how my generation worked. So so I'm going to say that I think things are changing with the new, with, you know, millennials. And I hate to use that term, but there you have it, with a new generation. Mm. For the better, in my opinion, for the better. Mm. I think we really question the way that medical schools assess us students. You know, rather than rather than this idea of whoever works the hardest is thus going to learn the most and be the best. I hope that in the future we start to maybe just change the paradigm, like you guys said earlier, and say you know the medical student who can best take care of him or herself while also delivering high quality care or while also learning the material in an effective way is going to be the a better physician in the future because I also think that you know the way that the healthcare environment is changing where patients are more involved in their care and where there's a lot more of an emphasis placed on the ability to connect with your patients and to sort of meet, meet them halfway in producing uh, or I guess in co-creating a care plan for them mm-hmm. there just needs to be a better understanding and a better ability to take care of yourself because those sort of interpersonal aspects of patient care suffer when you are tired, when you are sleep deprived, let alone the mistakes that you make. Right. So I think that there's a lot more consequences for um, running in the hamster wheel the way that we are these days. Yeah. yeah, there seems to be this ongoing balance between identifying things about yourself that uh, are true problems and need to be worked on versus accepting them as just part of who you are and learning to position yourself in a way that those things become a strength Mm -hmm. and um 
Maggie, when you mentioned about culture and the differences between older and younger generations, the, the thing that came to mind when you said that is when I think back to the 50s, and even though I wasn't alive then, you know, it's pretty well represented in culture and media and books and things like that. And when people romanticize the 50s, I don't understand why. Because, yes, our country was very prosperous and people had a high standard of living and it was a very fashionable era, but it was also extremely conformist. And anyone who was eccentric, you know, was often like shipped off to get a lobotomy. Uh, Anyone who, you know, expressed any kind of artistic tendencies was, you know, viewed as weird. And uh, it's like the stark contrast to today where people you know, aren't afraid to say like, listen, this is just who I am and I'm working on it, but I, I'm i also okay with this. I'm doing my best and that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. So the cultural shift, what do you think changed between the previous generation and us? There was a value shift that's starting to come to a head and be apparent in surveys and things that we want and the expectations of our pay. And I think our pay expectations have gone down, but what's gone up very much so is that desire for work-life balance quality and, of life. and personal yeah. satisfaction in your work yeah the ama is uh you know pushing from 16 to what is it 28 hours or something like that per shift for residents and that's if you talk to an older doc about it they say it's no big deal you guys should be stoked you have an 80 hour limit and the general idea among students now and residents is mm, i don't know about that that doesn't sound mm. very balanced what do you think caused that shift in value I have a theory, but I want to know what it is. I could tell. Let's hear your theory. Let's hear your theory. Tell me your theory. I don't have, I have no clue. So, <laughs> so we're eight years past 2008 when we had a pretty significant housing crash and recession. And mm-hmm. I was about 20-ish at the time, looking around, seeing people in my community. And I was working and I had this idea of, I had no idea I wanted to go into medicine at the time, but this belief of if I work hard and if I just chug away doing 60, 70 hours a week, I'm going to have a good life in my 60s. And it's kind of this delayed gratification. It's all going to be worth it. And I think a lot of people saw that in their parents and, you know, people that they valued and wanted to emulate. And they kind of saw the burn of, you know, these 401k retirement accounts just getting wiped away, just getting demolished all in a huge couple years. And that slow recovery. And and that's actually been happening much longer than, before you know than 2008 oh yeah and you yeah, could yeah. be you could be right on target there i mean people just sort of see the the costs of being so emotionally invested 100 percent in their in their work to the detriment of the rest of their lives mm-hmm. and be like oh yeah i saw my parents do that doesn't seem like a great idea um yeah i, I guess i could i could buy that what do you think maggie i don't know i also think that it's 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 kind of okay now for dads to stay home. It's okay for dads to want to get back to the kids' soccer game. I mean, I grew up where my dad's work, my dad was an aerospace engineer. He was on the road, right? He didn't really come to school events. And I think that this current generation was was raised by moms who, you know, who probably gave them a better sense that it's okay to have that part. And I just think that um, I think the current generation, again, I'm not of the current generation, and that's so anything I say is crap. <laughs> well, no, that's not true at all. <laughs> well, because, but I think that the values have changed, and I would, again, ask ask Jack for his opinion. I know when I'm outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm 
I'm stumped. I think, you know, I see among my friends the same desire of, uh, yes, I want to be happy down the line and I want to set myself up for success then, but I'm not sure that it's always going to be worth it mm. and that I'm definitely going to get that payout that I'm trying to get. So I might as well do my best to also maximize whatever I have going on right mm. now. And I think there's also, I mean, granted, I am from California, but th there's this big movement around mindfulness and presence and living in the moment and learning how to be happy in the moment. And I can't help but wonder if that plays a role in some way, whether it's, you know, imp implicitly conscious or not, but this idea that whatever I have going on right now is also worth maximizing, if only because it, it might not be there down the line. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of our students that I've talked to who are working on a building career say, I mean, it sounds really cool to work really hard for 30 years. <laughs> I don't even know to who? <laughs> like, I don't know what, what, I, what I'm going to get to enjoy after that point, you right. know? Um, so I might as well, I'm happy to sort of pull off the gas pedal a little bit and take in what I have going on right now because that's also really, really fun and worthwhile. Well, I think JW of Australia, Dangerous Australia, appreciates uh, your and uh, Jack and, and Maggie's input. Um, JW, let us know uh, if we if we did all right on that. Uh, but we got to cut this off. Some of us no, haven't. No, it's so much fun. I, well, some of us <laughs> haven't eaten lunch yet, and that's very important. That, uh, so, so that's all we have time for this week. Thank you, uh, Maggie and and Jack, for for joining us. It was nice to meet You're you welcome. both. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I hope to see you at the conference next year. Yay. Yeah. Tell us more about it by email, and then Dave can tell us, yeah. and we'll meet yeah. you there. And listeners, okay. and listeners, thank you for making us a part of your week. And if you like what you heard today, consider sharing us with your friends. Send us a suggestion on what we might discuss next time at theshortcoats at gmail.com or at 347shortct. And like our Facebook page, where every week I ask listeners to send in their thoughts on allegedly profound things. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and the Writing and Humanities. Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Argo Fox. Talk to you in one week. <laughs>